remain standing, not only for the reading of the Word, but before we get started, I would like to uh, bring us back into the framework. I think it's important for us to have the broader context here this morning, so let me give a bit of introduction and keep you on your feet just a little longer before I sit you uh, after the reading of the text. We're in Matthew chapter 13. We have now just finished, last Lord's Day, all of the kingdom parables and have come to this ending section. I don't want to call it a conclusion of the chapter or just a segue. It is that, but it is more than that. So before we read this text, let me frame it into the particular context of the entire book. I think this will be helpful not only in understanding as we move forward, but to rightly interpret the text before us. You may, be, you may recall when we first began our study in Matthew some weeks, months ago, that we considered the manner in which Matthew organizes the material of his gospel. It's not chronological, but theological. And the audience was primarily a Jewish audience. But he also wrote his gospel with five arrangements. He had a prologue, and then he had five arrangements that he alternated between narrative or story and discourse or teaching. So he has five of these couplets that go together, and as we see and read these couplets go together, one is an illustration, and then the other kind of comes into application or the understanding, the teaching of the matter. The first of those narratives began in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, and that group of teaching that followed that began with the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount goes all the way through the end of chapter 7, and it ends with a particular formula that nowhere else in the book uh, is. And that formula is this, and it happened when Jesus finished these sayings. And that is the formula that Matthew uses to close every one of those didactic or teaching uh, discourses of our Lord. The second narrative picks up in chapter 8, verse 1, and then that second teaching that couples with that second narrative begins in chapter 10 through the end of that chapter, which in chapter 11, verse 1, he begins again with the formula, and it happened when Jesus had finished those sayings. We come to that third narrative story which begins in chapter 11, verse 2. He goes through the end of chapter 12. And then the third set of teaching is the kingdom parables. We have now concluded or come to the very last of those kingdom parables. And those couplets, in some fashion, go together. The, the narratives, the stories, those historical illustrations along with the teaching. So we come to the passage that now before us. And we have this in verse 53, which should be a clue to us by now. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, closing a, another discourse, another time of teaching. So we know that this now begins the next major section in Matthew, and we should expect to find narrative or story. And those narratives, the, that story portion should then indicate to us, ah, he's now illustrating something historically of something that we are to learn from those narratives. And then after that, 
from chapter 14 and 15, 16 and 17, a very long portion of narrative, he's going to then begin another teaching section at the beginning of chapter 18. Then you'll have another two of those couplets. So the structure there is important for us to understand how to rightly interpret Matthew. How do we understand these narratives as it is in the broader context of the book and as it is juxtaposed to this teaching, these discourses of which our Lord uh, has taught. So with that all in mind, in matter of introduction, let's now begin in verse 53 through the end of the chapter. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes as we begin this new major section in Matthew to the very illustrations that it is intended to to illustrate the very points of which it is to illustrate even for us today. And may we take heed into the word that we would not merely be hearers, but we would leave here to be doers of the word. We pray, Father, that your spirit would fall fresh upon us in the preaching of the word today, that you would work in each one of our minds and hearts the the glory and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing forth the fruit that would please you that would glorify your name. So, Lord, be glorified in our very midst here today. Be glorified in our hearts of how we respond. Be glorified in our children. Be glorified in this congregation that we would not be merely familiar with our Lord Jesus, but that we would believe. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. With all that introduction and the reading of this passage, I want you to notice in this passage, which does mark the very end of that teaching and the beginning of the next major section of narrative, I want you to notice how that chapter or how this section, this passage before us ends. Look at the word that this particular passage ends. And what is that word? Unbelief. Unbelief. Now that's going to set the opening theme for the next chapters, 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. It's going to get our attention. It's drawing some uh, thematic point to us to help us to understand. Because what is it that hinders people? from believing and accepting Jesus and his kingdom. Why are people so unbelieving? And what this next section of narrative does for us, it's going to show us various historical illustrations of the various compilations that people have 
It's going to show us many kinds of obstacles and ambitions or secret thoughts or misunderstandings that causes people to refuse Christ. Now here in these chapters, we have a mirror to show the different attitudes and the various responses to the gospel that we can look and see that people have not changed over the course of 2,000 years. A lot of people think, uh, well, I'm different. if, if If I had only lived in the time in Jesus and saw him, well, here's here's a... Here's an illustration, here's, here's a bit of a mirror that you can now hold up to them and show them. No, that wouldn't mean. If only I could have seen the miracles, then, then I would believe. The science shows this, but if I could actually see the miracle itself, then that would persuade. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. So we begin this narrative section with a situation that is characteristic in breeding unbelief. And here's a situation that regularly does that. It begins this whole new section. And I want to preach this morning on the principle that familiarity breeds unbelief. Familiarity breeds unbelief. Now, you're here this morning, and you're pretty familiar with Jesus. And so that should be something that we should take heed to and and be cautioned of, and perhaps maybe you're not even in agreement with that statement yet. But it's particularly relevant for us because the church in America is ailing. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in our country, has a staggering number that are leaving their ranks without returning to the church, and especially in the generation of their children. Other denominations are reporting the same kinds of trends. So that's why in our country needs to take heed to this kind of familiarity. Why is it? We have been so familiar with the gospel, so familiar with the Bible language and the Bible. Why are we not clinging to it? We in the South here live in the Bible belt that so many people, if not most of the people, have had a church affiliation, you go into town today, and you talk to just about anybody, and almost anybody there, the majority of the people will have some kind of church affiliation. They'll point you to the time when they grew up, or what church they were a part of, or they are a part of this denomination. But they don't go to church. They're not a follower of Christ today. Why is that? This familiarity that breeds unbelief, we see in a historical illustration before us that is here for us to learn from and to see that people have not changed in 2,000 years. And let's consider this illustration. We first of all see in verse 54 that this narrative begins as Jesus returns to his hometown. And he came to his own country. This was familiar territory to Jesus. And what we now see is that he enters his own town as we see that The circumstance which breeds unbelief. He enters into the synagogue. Now this is the same synagogue that he begins his ministry. Luke points that out for us, that right after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, 
for 40 days, right after his baptism, the Spirit of God drove him to the wilderness to be tempted. That marked the beginning of his public ministry. And what does he do as soon as he comes off of being tempted? He goes into the synagogue. And as the custom was, he stood to read, and the scroll of Isaiah was open to him, and he read out of the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. And he closed it up and he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. And he sat down. And they began questioning, well, who is this? He says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. They have heard this before. You know, if you go on and read that particular narrative, you're going to find that the people tried to grab him and take him out and throw him off the cliff. And that's where it says, but he went through the midst of them. That was his first time in public ministry in his own town, in his own synagogue, and they wanted to throw him off the cliff. And this is the same synagogue that Jesus comes back to. And for the second time in his public ministry, he is here before them, Just like they rejected him on the first occasion, now here is a divine second opportunity for these people. But notice their response. First of all, the scripture shows us that they were astonished. Verse 54 says, where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works, they they could not deny that he had wisdom, they could not deny his mighty works, but they were questioning among themselves, where did he get this from? And then they, secondly, turned to one another and began to question their acquaintance with him. Uh, they, They knew his family. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? We know his brothers, we know his sisters, we know the profession, we know his upbringing. He was no stranger to them. Perhaps some of them played with Jesus when they were growing up. We have to understand that um, the lifestyle back in those ancient days was such that People lived very close in context with one another. You think we live in close community. They lived in very close community to the extent that there was very little privacy. People knew the affairs of others in quite an intimate way. So we see this, he goes back to his hometown, he goes back to the seminary where he regularly worshipped, and now on the second occasion of coming in, second occasion of his public ministry, he enters, and the same kind of thing happens. These were people that were very well acquainted with who he was, from where he's come from, his background, and there was an intimate familiarity, but that familiarity is the situation that breeds unbelief. In fact, familiarity breeds contempt. Recall how Jesus' brothers responded to him at this point in their life. You might recall that when his brothers and mother came to him, at that point, his brothers, and at this point, his brothers were still unbelievers. 
the guys that grew up in his own family home, the, the ones who knew in some very close proximity not only his character, but also his self-awareness at the age of 12 in the temple, they also knew of his mother's stories. They knew of the, the shepherds who came. They've heard all of this from a very close and firsthand account from his parents. But they were not only unbelievers at this particular time in his public ministry, they showed him contempt. There's an old saying that goes, no man is a hero to his own valet. You know, the person who opens the door for you and, and who is your servant, who is your right-hand person, because he has seen, he's so close to you, and he goes throughout all of your life with you, and he, he sees your problems, and he has to put up with all of those problems and weaknesses, and yet everybody else who sees him doesn't see all of those things, and he's a hero to many, but not his valet. You know, that can be true in our homes, can it not? Ladies, how do you view your husbands? You know them better than anyone else in this world. You have a public face about them, but how do you really think about them in your heart? What's your attitude? What is your spirit, your posture toward your husband? When you know all of his faults, you know his problems, you know his sins, and do you have a spirit of contempt like Abigail did for David? Do you look down upon him? Do you make fun of him because of his weaknesses? Children, how do you view your parents? You, you know a lot of their weaknesses. You see their sins better than we do. When you go home and you're with your parents and your mom and dad, the doors are closed and there's a certain transparency that we don't see. There's a, there's a facade here this day. There's a veneer. But who you really are and how you, your children see through a lot of that. And because of that, do you look down upon them? Are you embarrassed because of them? Do you not like to be around them in public or with your peers? Do you have an inward attitude of bitterness toward them? See, you can be very close and very familiar, and that actually can breed contempt when there's not something beyond familiarity. A married couple that lives as though they're just cohabiting, as just roommates, um, will eventually be contemptible toward each other, if not already. It's this particular case of familiarity with Jesus that bred not only contempt, but unbelief. And that's why this passage is in the Bible to make that very point. Familiarity breeds unbelief. And we live in a nation where the gospel has been so dispersed, and people can say, we've heard the Bible all of our lives. We know the Bible stories. My grandfather, uncle, was a pastor. We want to be aware 
of those situations like this that actually breed unbelief and familiarity is that situation. We want to be very careful as Christian parents not to breed mere familiarity with Jesus with our children. You are not looking for your children to know a lot about Jesus. You are looking for your children to know a lot of Jesus, experientially and personally. And there's a big difference. I recently received a communication from a young man who grew up in a homeschool family. I knew this family well. There was an outward form of Christianity, just like everyone here today. There were rigid standards in a highly structured homeschool environment. The whole family attended church every Lord's Day. They were involved in the church life of their church. This young man recently reported to me the behind the scenes of what actually went on in his home from his perspective. He was severely punished in a very unloving manner. There was what appeared to be great duplicity in the home, where an orthopraxis was not in harmony with the orthodoxy of these Reformed Christians. One of the young man's punishments for wrongdoing was to copy the Bible over and over and over again. He said, quote, having copied the Bible too many times and studying it without much other education, I got ordained and began teaching as a Unitarian youth pastor. Today, I consider myself an atheist, although I still think there may be something that could be called a deity that exists or has existed somewhere. I'm just going to reject any claims that cannot be scientifically substantiated. Very sad. Very familiar. Having copied the Bible many times, he became very familiar with its content, but because there was not the family life and the belief and the liturgy true to the content, it never got to the heart There was a kind of familiarity that that bred contempt, that bred unbelief. Now what happens when earnest Christian people press the testimony of Christ on people that are really familiar with Him? And there's what we see in verse 57. It says, they took offense at Him. Who is this? He's the carpenter's son. And he's teaching us? 
in this synagogue? Who does he think he is? They were offended. They were insulted. They stumbled over Jesus. Now, why was that? By the divine perspective, here was their second chance. But from their viewpoint, they got offended. Why did they get offended at God's second chance? God knew that Jesus, his son, when he sent him here to save his people, would become a stumbling block to many people. In fact, God determined that that would be the case. Both Peter and Paul alike quote Isaiah 8, that portion of Isaiah that speaks that Jesus is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the house of Israel, to the people. To the people that he had called out of Egypt, to the people that he made covenant with, to the people, to the church, to church. And when God sent his son into the world, he provided a way of salvation where he would cause some people to stumble and be offended because of Jesus. And this is where we have to be careful. John the Baptist came perilously close to stumbling. Jesus predicted on the night of his betrayal, right before his crucifixion, that every one of his disciples would stumble over him, and Jesus caused every one of them to trip that night. And we have to accept that Jesus and the gospel will not always satisfy our intellect or the way we think things ought to be. So what is the problem with people from the human perspective that are so familiar with Jesus and they get so offended that they stumble over the truth? What is the problem? You know, we would think that the more you know about him, the more you would be like him. So what is so offensive then? Let me bring this up from an illustration in John chapter 9. Now, rather than you turning there, I'll try to summarize it. The scene from John chapter 9 is the, the time in which Jesus heals this man who had been born blind. This congenital, congenital blindness that... Uh, that Jesus heals. Now this had never been done before. A man who had been born blind had never been healed of blindness up till that point, ever in history. Never heard about it. Never had, has the word ever gone out like that. It was such a notable, undeniable miracle. Some of the people questioned the man. How did this happen? How are you healed? And he simply said, Jesus healed me. And, and they said, well, where is he? I don't know. You can see the simplicity of this man throughout the entire passage. The people, quite unsatisfied, took him to the Pharisees. What do you make of this? And the Pharisees said, and they murmured among themselves, and, he, and, and they said, well, how did, you, how did this happen? Well, Jesus healed me. The Pharisees murmured because they said something about Jesus. And they asked him, they said, well, what do you say about Jesus? Who do you, what do you think about him? He's a prophet. 
the man said. And so they were so unbelieving, they just could not still grasp what had happened. They're seeing it with their own eyes. They understood something notable happened, but they could not figure out. They go to his parents, and they ask his parents, is this your son? Yes, this is my Was he born? Yes, he was born blind. Yeah, we, we know that's the case. How were your eyes, the eyes of your son, healed? He said, he's of age, go ask him. They bring him in again. And they question him all over again. Tell us how you were healed. This man, Jesus, that you give the credit to, he's a sinner, they say. The man simply replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. The one thing I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. Again, they asked him, how were your eyes opened? And he said, I've told you already and you do not listen. Do you want to be his disciples too? He said. And I want you to hear this next portion, because this illustrates it. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes? Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, now this is the blind man, This blind man speaking, this simple man. Since the world began, it has not been unheard that anyone opened the eyes of anyone who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us. And they took him. And they cast him out of the synagogue. There was a formal act of discipline. Now why were the Pharisees so offended? They were so offended because of the corrective element that this man brought to the table with the truth. That's why they were offended. The man began to teach and instruct the teachers of Israel. Now, he didn't just start right off the bat doing it. It was only after about the fourth time that they asked him, and he finally just, through the Spirit, spoke. And that's what offended him. They felt they knew Jesus, they were familiar with him. They grew up with him. They have been around him. They knew his father, his mother, and his brothers by name. But when their presuppositions were corrected, and they felt that they had been misjudged and belittled, they felt as though they had been rudely treated, they felt justified to be provoked. Many people get offended when their presuppositions about Jesus are challenged with biblical truth. Speaking about those who know a lot about their Bibles. Perhaps they have some theological 
education, and they've drawn some very good theological conclusions, albeit not all accurate. And when they're challenged with the truth that they have been wrong, they get offended because of Jesus. It's this corrective element that is so offensive to those who are so familiar with Jesus that it breeds an element of unbelief. And then Jesus then observes, and then he comments in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. In other words, in his own country, in his own house, a prophet does not have honor. So the problem really was that in all these cases, it was not the familiarity itself which was the problem. The deepest problem is the fact that these people really did not know him well at all. That was the problem. They thought they did because of the familiarity. They knew the Bible stories. They knew the history. They knew the people. They knew all of the things. They were regular members of the synagogue, and they came regularly to church. They had copied out the Scriptures. But they really didn't know Jesus, experientially or personally. And the last verse of this particular section then is a warning to us all in verse 58. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus did not answer them with many other miracles to persuade them. Would to God that the church would learn That no matter what they do and whatever tricks they have, they're not going to persuade people into the kingdom of God with mechanisms, not even with great works of miracles. Jesus would not do any more miracles in order to persuade them. You know why? Because it wasn't going to persuade them. They had already seen he was a man full of wisdom. They had already seen the marvelous works which he had done. They could not deny these things. Another miracle or two or three? I'm going to do it. The issue was not with him or the circumstances. The issue was one of unbelief in their heart where they had shut him down and shut him out. And with Jesus not doing any more, he really was providing a great mercy to them so that they would not be even more accountable in their unbelief in the day of judgment. Folks, if this is how, if this is a passage that gives an example of how Jesus responds, you may find yourself stuck. If you're holding out for more, or you're holding out for something else, if there's something more that you want Jesus to do for you in order that you might believe, give your life to Him, in your current state of unbelief, He doesn't owe you that. 
And he may not give you that. And you may just be stuck without any further evidence, proof, scientific, whatever, intellectual, whatever, psychological, whatever, just stuck. Jesus never ran chasing anybody down to grab them, to persuade them one last time. Now your hope, your hope is simply to pursue what verse 54 says when it says, He taught in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now your hope and your only hope in your state of unbelief is to pursue those questions. Who is this man? What is this wisdom? How is marvelous works? And you continue to pursue that question. Who is this Jesus? And you take that right through to its logical end, to its spiritual end. You wrestle through to its conclusion until you come to believe that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God, the Savior. Even if you have to just merely believe the naked word alone, meaning with no outside evidences, with no miracles given, with nothing else, but this is the Word of God, and because God said it, it is true, therefore I will believe it. Even if you have no emotional help or any kind of emotional strength of crutches that confirms this from an emotional state, you have to believe it simply by the naked Word of God alone. That's what he's asked every one of us to do. God's been very gracious to give us occasionally these tokens of grace along the way. He's given us occasions to see answers to prayer. But the old Puritans used to call a dark night of the soul the time when you're going through a spiritual wilderness and you're not giving evidence that this is true. You're not seeing the fruitfulness that right now this is true. You're not getting the emotional insurance that this is true, and you're going to have to believe the naked Word of God alone, apart from any outside assurances, signs, or tokens. They would call that the dark night of the soul. And Jesus many times brings His people through those dark nights to see, do you trust me? Do you really trust me? He tests us. He doesn't leave us in the wilderness. But for a season or a time, He will take us through in order to strengthen our faith and bring us out. And then there are many evidences and tokens and warmth and emotions and all of those things, but you have to trust the naked Word of God alone, apart from miracles, apart from anything else. That's true for every one of us. And today, you may be in that wilderness Wondering if the Word of God is true. I hear God say it, but I don't see it. I hear His promises, but I don't think it's supplying to me. I'm struggling in my faith, and I don't see that this is really working. Do you believe 
the naked Word of God? And will you give yourself to it? Will you trust yourself to it? Will you throw yourself upon it? And just leave the results to God, no matter what those results may be. That's a test. And there will be a time when every single one of you will come to such a time as that, and you're going to have to do just that to get it through. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's a promise. We just claim the promise and trust him for it. This narrative helps us to see by a historical illustration. It illustrates through this story, this narrative, of why so many people who are so familiar with Jesus simply do not believe him. They're familiar, but they really don't know him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ and to see His glory at the right hand of the Father. And that as we behold His glory, we might be changed from glory to glory into His likeness. Lord, I pray as the pastor of these people that if there's anyone here struggling today, spiritually, very familiar with the Bible, very familiar with Jesus, but truly does not know Him well or at all. We pray that the Spirit of God would take this message and drive it deeply into their lives, that they could read the Word and believe the promises, even if they have to have it with the naked Word of God alone. It is not through gimmicks, not through outward externalities, it is not through methodologies, it is not through manners, it is not through the way of which so much of the church has gone about persuading people. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it is the power of God. And we will preach the word, we will cling to the word, we will believe the word. It is the word that it comes out of your mouth that has created this world, that has recreated us in Christ Jesus. And today, may we cling to the promises and know that with God, they are yes and amen. And then we pray that we might know the truth and the truth will set us free. And this day, we pray that we would stand in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free and that we would be liberated from all of those oppressions and lies of the enemy. And may we, Lord, sense your presence that will accompany these things and give us the tokens of grace that you do not owe. You do not owe. But that you so often give. And how thankful we are for them. I pray if there's anyone here today that truly has not been regenerated of your spirit, that even in the preaching now of this text, that you will change their hearts and give their lives over to Jesus Christ, to know Him experientially, to know Him personally, not just be familiar with Him. Help them to see the difference by removing the veil from the eyes of their heart. 
Lord, we commit this to you, that you would bring forth much fruit in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.